Man, it's great to be able to see all of you this weekend uh, from a distance and hope you're all doing well as we continue on in our series here of Philippians. As Nate mentioned, we continue to deal with it. And this weekend is a, a little bit different as we begin with uh, the relational conflict that can happen that sometimes we uh, hide from and sometimes we don't know really what to be able to do with. Now, through the years uh, for me growing up in the life of the church, I remember uh, uh, I've had a lot of favorite services or favorite sermons, and particularly here at Northside, uh, some of my favorite memories of anything God's done in a service like that has been here. Uh, I remember when we used to be in the centrum, before we were in the auditorium here, we would do Christmas in what we called in the round. And that meant that you're really close to one another, you see one another. Some of those services were some of my favorite memories, as well as a lot of Easter ones. I I even remember back as a kid, uh, anytime one of our preachers who we'd have at the time would would say something pretty clever, I'd hold on to that and kind of remember, at least if I stayed awake for the whole sermon, I'd remember part of that. I remember one in particular, he was talking about a a fellow in the Old Testament, uh, and and he uh, had leprosy, and he was uh, of royalty, really higher up, but he wasn't necessarily a believer. But he got a hold of one of the prophets, and God said to the prophet, you you let him know if he wants to be healed, and he wants me to do that, then you, you have to let him know, go down to the Jordan River, and and uh, kind of uh, immerse himself, uh, dip himself in there seven times and he'll be well. Well, that was beneath him. He didn't want to go there because the Jordan River was so muddy, somewhere between the Ohio River and the Mississippi River, that type of muddy. He didn't want to go there. So he resists for a while and then he finally does. And uh, he's healed as he comes up out of the water the seventh time, realizes God is is the God of all creation and healing. And and the title of that message was Seven Ducks in a Muddy River. And I remember thinking about that. It's stuck with me. Some things stick with us from the Word of God when it's presented in a certain way or a service in a certain way that we experience. I remember a sermon by Bob Russell years ago when I was just a youth minister way back in the day, and it was very simple. He said, you got to remember three things. Number one is God answers prayer. And I thought, okay, I remember that. He said, the second thing is God answers prayer dramatically. And he illustrated so many times in the Bible when God did that. And he said, the third thing to remember is God answers prayer dramatically, but it always doesn't have to be dramatic. And I thought that covers everything. Now, if you've been here at Northside for a period of time through the years, you might remember uh, over in the centrum when we had relocated here back way back in 2002. And I think later on in the fall of that year after we got here, we built a bridge 40 feet wide on the stage over there on a, on a baptism weekend. And we did it so that people could write a little paragraph about what it meant to them to come to faith. And that paragraph of their testimony was read as they walked across the stage right into the baptistry to be baptized. Beautiful service, incredible time. Of course, it it didn't hurt uh, that we had a little choir off on the side singing this song from Oh Brother, Where Art There? As I go down to the river to pray, studying about that good old way. Now, that was kind of cool and added it. I'll never forget seeing people be so joyful and yet a feeling of formal and presenting themselves to God. It was a wonderful moment to remember. I'll never forget years ago, we were trying to talk about not putting off that decision, and we put up a whole train station here on the stage, and it was called Slow Train Coming. Don't put off the decision to follow Jesus. 
and we used what everybody knows ought to be the only invitation you could ever use, a song at the end uh, by the Eagles, Desperado. You know, why don't you come to your senses? You've been out riding fences for so long. It's amazing what sticks in our mind, and I say all that today to say this message on relational conflict may not be one of those messages. It, it may be one that you, you kind of hold on and put off on the side and refer to a little bit, but in all honesty, it's, it's hard. It's difficult to resolve different conflicts, and if we run away from it, we'll never get better at it. And if we charge into it and try to uh, be the bull in the china shop, it'll never help. We have to come, as God tells us, whenever there's a conflict and deal with it before it deals with us. When we were in the church in Las Vegas before coming back here to, to Indiana in 99, we were out there about six years. During that time, we realized one of the best ways to help reach people was to, to have a great premarital ministry. So we did 12 weeks of premarital counseling in a group setting, about 15 couples or so, and then took a week off, then do it again, turn it around, get as many people in that to hear what God has to say about that. And the, uh, the funny thing that I remember was we had a guy who was uh, pretty young at the time, coordinating all that, new on staff, engaged to be married himself, and he was recruiting some of us staff to say, listen, I'd like for you to talk on this topic, you to talk on this topic. And he got to me and he said, George, I'd like for you, to, well, you get to choose, George, on one of the topics in premarital counseling. He said, would you rather talk about sex and intimacy or would you rather talk about resolving conflict? And in a, in a weak moment, being a smart aleck kind of guy, I just said, John, what's the difference? <laughs> now, every time I've ever shared that story, there's a guy that goes, ha, 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 and there's a lady sitting next to him that goes, ha, hmm. So ladies, I'm, I'm feeling the hmm. I understand it. Just kidding, just kidding. Sometimes we... Avoid this relational conflict. And sometimes it can keep us, or we, we think there's some easier way rather than just coming together and being honest about that. And I want you to know today, it may not be a favorite topic for us to deal with, but it is one of the things that God uses to bring healing and strength and purpose back into our life when our relationships are right. Now, if you have a Bible and, and you want to open it, we're in Philippians chapter 4. We're going to look at the first three verses just a little bit at a time. The very first thing that Paul says is so important to do is to affirm your affection. Say it with me, if you will, right where you are, there in the living room, in the car, wherever you are. Affirm your affection. Here's how he does that in the first verse. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, stay true to the Lord. I love you and long to see you, dear friends, for you are my joy and the crown I receive for my work. He lets them know how much they matter to him. He's honest, he's open, he's affectionate, he's vulnerable, he's encouraging, he's all those things. He says, there's this love that I have for you. And this longing that I have for you, have you found that to be true now while we're a little more online rather than all getting together on the weekend? We're kind of that elbow in exile where we just, we, we love to see other people. Hey, can't wait till we get back at church, but kind of a virtual high five or a little elbow from a distance. Paul says, I have that same type of longing. 
You look in the life of Jesus, and Jesus had that longing and that loving. He loved little kids, and as they came to him, uh, the parents were glad to see that happen. The kids were glad to see him. The disciples kind of turn into uh, all the old movie star W.C. Fields. The guy says, hey, get away from me, kid. You bother me. You know, he, they turn into him, and they kind of become the people that keep little kids coming to Jesus. But Jesus says, no, let them come here. Look at you. I mean, he, he loves them. When it came to the time of his disciples, before everything was unwinding there in that last week, before they come to the Last Supper, he comes around each one of them and washes their feet and said, listen, you got to let me do this because if you don't let me do this, you'll have no part of me. He, he took on the role of a servant. He loved them deeply. Jesus looked over the city of Jerusalem and he, 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 he wept over the city of Jerusalem. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how I have longed to, to embrace you and draw you to myself just like a mother hen will draw her chicks to herself. He says, but you wouldn't let me do that. You see, Paul understood that loving, affection, and affirmation is the life of Jesus, the love of Jesus, the example of Jesus, and that has to be the prelude before we begin to deal with any kind of problem that we have with one another. So now the second thing that Paul does, he moves right ahead and he acknowledges the problem. Now notice in uh, verse 2 and really actually half of verse 3 as well, and he got a couple of names in there of two ladies who had a problem, and, and uh, it's, I hope I'm saying them right. I've checked with Neil, and he says I'm saying them right, although I didn't say them right the first time. It says, now I appeal to you, Euodia and Syntyche, I First of all, called her uh, uh, Syntyche from Kentucky, but that didn't fly. Euodia and Syntyche, please, because you belong to the Lord, settle your disagreement. I ask you, my true partner, he's appealing to somebody else now to come and help. Help these two women, for they worked hard with me in telling others the good news. He validates them, but he also says, you're going to need a little help. He calls them out by name, and he says, you need to realize that we have to deal with this, but you're the ones who have to deal with it. We just have to bring it to a head. He had to get their attention and give them direction. At any time, some type of spiritual reconciliation has to happen. There's a getting of our attention and a giving of that direction that we begin to follow. Now, he's got a couple things working against him. He's in prison. He's long distance. He's online. He can't be there right there for the body language, the inflection, and to look him eye, eye to eye. But he has to have, allow that to happen in another way. So he was dealing with the distance. He also was dealing, in the book of Romans, you may not know this, but Paul, he kind of suffered from some eyesight type of stuff. Don't know if it was cataracts or, or what it might be, but uh, he, he, he says at the end of the book of Romans, he says, see what large letters I write this letter myself with. He says, I'm signing off here, but I can't see too good. Now, I've, I've had cataracts. Uh, maybe some of you have as well. I've had them both taken care of. Uh, one was all about seven years ago. Another one was a couple of years ago. The first one I had done in May. And May's a good time to get that done, I guess. Everything's pretty outside. The moment you start seeing again the next day with your eye, it looks great. But the, the second one was in December. And I would highly recommend if you ever have to do cataract surgery, December is the month of choice. Let me tell you why. Two reasons. Number one, your deductible uh, has probably already been satisfied. You want to get one more thing in before you have to start paying for the whole thing next year. But the other thing is, if you've never had that done, you won't understand. But if you have, the day after the, your cataract surgery, you take that off, 
and, and you look and everything is just, it's, it's, you can see it, it's a little bright, but if there's lights, they're blurry. And one of the neatest experiences I've ever had in my life, drug-free, <laughs> which is my only experience, has been seeing the lights at Christmas the day after cataract surgery. Now, Paul is struggling with those two things, long distance and I need another piece of paper before I write another letter to anybody. So he's having to focus on that. And these chains are bothering me while I'm in prison. To understand how he addresses this, he turns a corner and he makes an appeal. And the appeal is serious. Anytime you make an appeal and say, listen, I'm appealing. He knew what that was like. He had appealed to Caesar. He wasn't going to let the local courts, you know, just kind of turn him loose and, and, and let the Jewish people that hated him kill him right there. He appealed to Caesar and God used it for protection. He understood what an appeal was and that means it's serious. He names names. Yodia, Syntyche. We've got to work this out. That means it's personal. He, he takes a moment to say, please. He furthers that appeal by showing respect. And, and he says that you, there's a belonging that you have. And he, he appeals to them that, listen, we're all part of this same group, this same spiritual family, this same team. And the belonging appeals to their integrity and their identity. And then he finally just says these three words, settle your disagreement. He says, what to do? He says, who's owning it right now? Might not be your fault, but it's your problem right now. And what is it? It's not a rivalry. It's not out of control. It's a disagreement right now. And he gets clear and to the point. And that's so important for us. In, in a basis of love and affirmation and affection and our fellowship with one another and our honoring of God to be able to get to the point in a non-threatening way and say, this is bothering me, or we disagree on this, and if we continue on further, it's going, to, it's going to be much harder later than it is now. I love what Eugene Peterson says in the message translation. In that verse, he, he says, iron out your differences and make up. God doesn't want us holding grudges, and he doesn't. He wants us to be able to work that out. Now, I've wondered at times what perhaps um, Paul might have been reflecting on. Because anytime you start to write, you know that feeling when you write or when you type or communicate in any way, there, there's a certain amount of reflection. I wonder what he reflected on as he thought, I've got this opportunity to help these two gals and this local church be able to work this out and come back together and, and, and agree and move forward and go ahead and let God reach the world. But we're kind of stuck right now because we got a problem. And I think maybe he reflected on Israel's history. And the, and the story that comes to mind for me is maybe he reflected on a Mordecai and Esther in the Old Testament. I love that story. Mordecai was a, a cousin to Esther, kind of an older cousin, kind of a uncle figure, if, if you will. And, and they're all in exile. God's people are scattered everywhere. And they're in the land of Persia at the time. King Xerxes is the fellow who's in charge over there. Mordecai does so good as a Jewish person, even though not everybody can know exactly who the Jewish folks are around there. He's made it up into the cabinet, so he's got some influence. Esther finds herself in, in a very unique situation because King Xerxes gets mad at the queen because uh, she kind of refuses a public appearance and he doesn't like that and, and he's disrespected. So he gets rid of the last queen and, and after a while things get kind of lonely and he runs a beauty contest to get the next queen. And Esther is a Jewish person in a, in a different culture 
wins the, the beauty contest and she becomes the queen. In the meantime, after that's happened, there's another fellow who hates Jewish people and he primarily hates Mordecai. He's resentful of him and he's been humiliated by him. Not any fault of Mordecai's. And he begins this pre-Hitler plot to kill all of God's people. And it's kind of undercover off on the side. And Mordecai hears about it and he goes to Esther. And he says, Esther, if you've never read this, it, 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 it's a tearful passage of scripture. It's beautiful. It's Esther chapter four. Mordecai goes to her and, and he says, Esther, you need to realize uh, there's a plot against God's people and it's a serious one. Now they're on the same page till now, but if she wouldn't have gotten on the page with him and agreed, things would have looked a lot differently. He says, you need to understand, Esther, God's deliverance is going to come from somewhere else. If you don't respond to this, if we don't agree and you take action, then your family will die. You're not exempt in the palace, neither am I over here in the cabinet. And then he says words that just pierce her heart. He says, who knows, Esther, why God has put you in royalty, why you have come to royalty. Help me out if you know it right there in the couch, in, the, in your living room, for such a time as this. And she saw the providence of realizing, I have no business being in the palace. This is the hand of God, and I'll be doggone. It turns out it, I'm here to protect and intervene and save his people. So here's Esther's response. She says, okay, Mordecai. Uh, you go ahead, get together with your bunch and pray. I'll get together with my ladies' Bible study Tuesday at 9.30 in the morning. And we're going to pray. And we're going to fast and not eat for three days. And then, you see, it was against the law to go to the king. She was not allowed to do that. You could not go unless he extended the golden scepter. And he only did that every 30 days, even to the queen. And she says, I will risk that. And even though it's against the law, she says, I will go to him and tell him what's going on. And then in the King James language, in the Bible, it, it has this phrase. I've always loved it. She says this courageous heart of faith. She says, and if I perish, I perish. And I, and I wonder maybe as Paul's encouraging this little conflict, if he reflected maybe on, boy, I'm thankful Esther stepped up and they agreed or it would have looked a lot different. Or maybe he reflected on his own history with Barnabas in Acts chapter 15. The early church is off to a great start. Things are going good. Here's Paul, who now is a, was a, a killer of Christians. And the only person who would kind of come alongside him and vouch for him and bring him into the fellowship in the Jerusalem church was Barnabas. He's the only guy with shoulders big enough to say, come on, Paul, you're with me, and, and vouch for him and let other people know that he's, he's fine in here. And they have already taken off on a good mission trip, but they had a little problem because one of Barnabas's relatives went along, John Mark. And Paul didn't want him to sign up for the next trip, all right? It don't go to the lobby, John Mark. You just stay away. We'll take care of all this mission stuff because you left early, left us all hung out to dry. And the next trip, Barnabas says, I want to give him another chance. And Paul says, not on my watch. And if you know that story, the Bible says in Acts 15 that their disagreement became so sharp, they parted ways. And Barnabas takes his relative, John Mark, who goes on to write the Gospel of Mark. First one to turn in his homework, he did great. 
But Paul gets Silas and they go on. So now we got a couple of mission trips. I wonder if he reflected on that. I wonder if Paul just said, okay, how can I keep this from getting out of control? And he did an incredible job of giving spiritual guidance. You see, there's a problem with disagreeing. There's a problem when we let stuff get in our relationship and there's conflict that we don't deal with. What happens if we continue in that disagreement is it can become personal and people choose sides. Happens all the time. What else can happen is it can cause what might be called mission drift and people lose sight. In other words, we forget what are we really all about? We're about saving the world, reaching people on behalf of the Lord, letting them know that Jesus is the only way to heaven, the only way for forgiveness, the only way to make sense of our life. And sometimes when mission drift happens because there's disagreement and we're preoccupied over there, it seems like we're all about saved people's preferences rather than lost people's problems. Got a buddy, Gary Cox, preaches in Fort Myers, Florida. He's been there, goodness, over 25 years. Great guy, great friend. And he says he, he always reminds his people that right there on the Gulf, he says, let's, let's never forget, we're not a cruise ship. We're a lifeboat. Say it with me. We're not a cruise ship. We're a lifeboat. To be, boat, to be the church, we have to understand that it is all about our purpose. And that's why we never hesitate to remind us here at Northside what we're about. And that is to connect unconnected people to Jesus Christ. The greatest thrill in life comes when we see when a person leaves wherever they are and they come to faith and they bow their knee at the foot of the cross, acknowledging who Jesus is. But what happens when we don't agree, what happens when it becomes all about us is they miss out. And we can't let that happen. Now, Paul says there's a need for help. There's a need for help to come about. And coming in to help, and he appeals to this fellow he calls his true partner. In another translation in the Bible, it has a name that kind of means that. It's hard to say, S-Y-Z-Y-G-U-S. Sazygus, I'll just call him Gus, all right? Paul appeals to a fellow as a shepherd and says, listen, I need you to come in and really help these people hear them, help them hear one another. They're going to have to solve it, but you have to come alongside. You know, I, 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 once in a while, as you well know, I get stuck in, in uh, previous decades of music, and I found myself in this message not getting caught in the 70s at all. I went way back to the 60s for some reason, and on the first point, understanding the positive thought of making this relationship work, I, I just kind of heard the song in my head, try to see things my way. <laughs> Only time will tell if I'm right or I'm wrong. Try to see things your way, but the risk of knowing that our love may soon be gone, we can work it out, we can work it out. Life is very short, and there's no time for fussing and fighting, my friend. I have always thought that it's a crime. So I will ask you once again, yeah, brought to you by the Beatles today. I need to send Paul McCartney a thank you note. Just the moment I continue on in that, all of a sudden I look and I see help. I said, I need somebody help, not just anybody help. I said, I need someone help. Paul was appealing for help. And to finish the whole trilogy on that, what would you do if I sang out of tune? Would you stand up and walk out on me? 
Lend me your ear and I'll sing you a song and I'll try not to sing out a key. Everybody together, I get by with a little help from my friends. Paul says this is a very true statement. The times in my life that I tried to solve everything on my own and if there's a problem over here, there comes a point where we say, you know what, we're going to need some help. Whether it's in marriage, whether it's in friendship, whether it's in ministry, whether it's in family, whatever it might be. To have somebody who can come alongside. And Paul says, you need to know that this fella loves you as I do. And he's going to help you work out your disagreement. And you got to do it because if you don't, we'll wind up holding one another hostage. You see, it's the affirmation that he began with that softens the heart. It's the resistance that hardens the heart. I remember when Nate graduated from high school, year 2000, Silver Creek. We only lived here this, just about a year. And uh, it was a neat moment in, you know, milestone, uh, kind of a passageway. And I, I'm just thinking, wow, this is really neat. And the kid got up uh, who was the president of his class and also the Val Victorian had a great speech, pretty short, got to the point really quick. And in those hot uh, graduations, you know, in a gym, you, everybody's glad to have a short speech. But he ended it in a way that was very uh, true to the culture here. He said, so finally, all I got to say as we graduate is peace, love, and euchre. <laughs> and I turned to my wife, I said, only in southern Indiana can you say euchre and a commencement address. And he did. You know, sometimes playing cards, it's a lot of fun. But sometimes when we get that edge and all of a sudden, boom, we do something so maybe really hard. We're glad to get rid of something in our hand and, and it puts someone else in a bad situation. Remember the game Uno? And Uno, uh, that game, a little card game, a kind of safe one. It, it would have a draw four, kind of a wild card there. And whenever you got that, oh, it's going to cost you points if you get caught it with, with it in your hand. But boom, when you drop that, that uh, draw four, boom, shakalaka, and next thing you know, they're in trouble and they're going to lose the game. There's something about that. We have to be careful that in our resolving of conflict, we don't turn into card playing people. Let me explain. One of the hardest things to recover from is when we play the victim card in life. And if Yodia and Syntyche would have just said, well, you know, I feel sorry for myself, I feel far, sorry for myself. You have to realize when you play the victim card, you're really playing the villain card as well. Somebody has to be vilified if you're victimized. And we have to make sure in our relationships in the life of the kingdom of God, that we don't do something that's just going to make us feel better for the time or make us avoid our part in that. But do things that will help us overcome our situation. Help us solve a disagreement. It, it might simply be to create understanding where there's confusion. It might be to say I've, I've, I've been pretty stubborn. Or maybe insecurity has been in there. In my heart. So how do we begin to agree? What, what does the Bible say elsewhere about how we ought to resolve things? and This reconciliation that can come when there's conflict in a relationship. First Peter 5, 6 says to humble yourself. 
In other words, that, that first beatitude, blessed are the poor in spirit, for they shall see God. It, it's not all about me. It's me humbling myself before God. That's a start. Paul goes on in Colossians chapter 3 and he says, we, we need to forgive each other as Christ has forgiven us and bear with one another, tolerate, be patient. We need to have this enduring sense of we want this to work out. We want to come close. We want God to restore what once was. And that means to release somebody because they weren't perfect to forgive. Nate mentioned last week, Ephesians 4.15. That, that ought to be the theme song of, uh, of every, every small group to speak the truth in love. And when you and I begin to speak the truth in love, don't wait too long to tell the truth or you'll never be able to do it in love. And don't be just loving and never get around to the truth or it'll have no power to, to change our heart and life and our mind and attitude. We move from honesty to clarity to unity. And it is the work of God that pulls us back together. There's a power in synergy and that's what Paul was appealing to. He's saying, come on, come on. Life is too short and fellowship is too precious and unity is too fragile. We, we can't just disclaim this. The synergy of two plus two equals five when God's in it, but negative two plus negative two equals negative five, a 10-point spread if our animosity and our resistance is in that as well. He finishes up by assuring them of their salvation. He says, you need to know uh, they worked along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are written in the book of life. He says, they're in. You need to know I'm so thankful for them. I love them. Yeah, they got a problem. Yeah, we got to deal with that. Yeah, we're going to need some help. But their salvation, he says, is not at stake. We're all going to heaven if we have a faith in Jesus Christ. But what is at stake? What becomes at stake is the message of our fellowship reflecting the mature love of God for everyone else and his people would look at us and say, they can't even get along. Why would I want to be a part of that? It's other people's salvation. It's other people hearing the message, seeing the love of God. That's what's at stake. So what does your resetting the table look like? What maybe is God saying in your heart and life right now in relationships that you need to pray about, address, and always remember, it's important to talk to God about people before we talk to people about God. We have to begin by letting him know we love him and trust him and we're listening to him. But there's probably some relationships for all of us that we need to have. One of them might be the person who says, you know what, I... Uh, I, I, need to, I need to sit down and talk about some things. I'm not here to attack. I'm just here to talk. I, I'm here so we can work out this conflict, all right? Some people are quick to that. Some people are slow. And it might be that you would be that person that needs to respond and say, you know what? Uh, you're right. <laughs> I, I've missed the closeness with you. I know we're not on the same page. We're in the same room, maybe we can be on the same page with the same direction and the same heart, but it's a step at a time to come together. Maybe you're, maybe you're in that seat right now. Or maybe you're the person that Paul mentioned. I got this friend and he really cares about you. 
And I'm asking him to help because these two are going to need some help. This person, that person, this group, that group, this team, this family, whatever it might be, this, this spiritual relationship. What's, what's your table look like today? What, what does your small group look like? What does our, our church look like today from a distance and yet up close as much as we can? What does our community look like? What does Minneapolis look like? What does our country look like? What's our world look like right now? As Nate said at the beginning, we grieve over the death of George Floyd and the injustice. And we could probably address that even more, but I want you to know for that type of prejudice and injustice that happens to people of color and all sorts of folks, It becomes, it becomes a, a moment where we stand for the love of God reflecting his heart. And we stand against it, injustice. And today I pray that in our hearts, in our lives, in our families, in our groups, in our fellowship, in our nation, that God would bring us together and there is only one drawing element to that. And that's simply the amazing grace that he offers us. But before grace becomes amazing, before you hear the good news, you and I have to hear the bad news that we're lost without him. My soul is lost apart from God if I have not embraced him and surrendered to him. So is my family. So is this nation. It becomes a moment for us to appeal to heaven and say, God, sit in this seat, please. We'll do our best to set the table for you with one another on a small scale, on a big scale, but our hearts must return to you. Oh God, help us to resolve conflict with your love on every level. That's my hope. It's my prayer for all of you. Northside, as Paul said, we love you. We long for you uh, individually and corporately together. May God bring about healing and strength and reconciliation and wisdom as we work out some of the difficult things in our relationships, in our life, in our faith, in our world. Love you. God bless you. And hope to see you soon.